Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek with my third conversation recording with my mom, Marie. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And we're here in my apartment. Last time we recorded up at your house. That's true, three years ago. And this was a long time waiting because uh, us getting together. But the reason we've been talking about this a little bit, what drove these conversations was food and co-ops, CSAs, farmers markets, things like that. One of my big memories of growing up was getting food from the food co-op called Weaver's Way in Philadelphia, which I, I believe is an institution now. It's been there for quite some time. It's stood the test of time very well. I mean, it's growing to other places. Now, I also remember that as a kid growing up, there were, to the extent I remember you and dad together, but even after that, when you and Bill, there was always going to the co-op. Uh, but I also know that there was some food stuff that you guys did. And what, what drove me to talk to you about it a collective, a group stuff that you did. One of the things driving this is that a lot of people say, Josh, not everyone can do what you do. They don't have access to farmer's markets like you do. They don't have that. They can't just go to a co-op. And besides that stuff is expensive. Uh, organic and natural is, is expensive and they can't get the local things. Now I do recognize that I have access to a farmer's market that not everybody has, but I think higher prices. One of the things is that if, if high high demand and low supply for farmer's market stuff, they're only going to sell the expensive stuff. So I think the more farmer's markets we have, the more that'll change. But also I remember you had, there were three kids and you guys weren't making tons of money. I wasn't working. Right. And so it was, um, and dad was not yet a professor or was it not tenured. So it was struggling to make ends meet and three kids. And so I associate a co-op with fresh fruits and vegetables. And I also associate it with what you do when you don't have money and time. When you do have three kids and you have to make a family, make it work. Now, I'm not a parent, so I can't speak from my personal experience on the parent side, but on the kid side, I can. And now, I also mentioned, when I, when I talked about it before, you said it started in Corvallis. Now, I have to share my joke here. That It was your joke, actually. Uh, I have a friend who's in Corvallis and I mentioned, hey, mom, I was talking to someone in Corvallis and you said, that's where you're conceived. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and you also said that um, there was, uh, before joining Weaver's Way, I understand that there was you and other families collectively went to the distribution center in South Philly, which is a long drive away at like 4 a.m. But when I asked you about that, you said that actually began in Corvallis before I was born. So um, I wonder if you could take us back to the scene in Corvallis, I guess it would be the late 60s. You know, it's interesting as you're talking because we were first in Chicago. And that's where we first ran into the concept of a food co-op. And if you were a member of the Chicago food co-op, you paid less because you put in some time for working. Then when we relocated to Corvallis, Corvallis also had a food co-op that was a physical structure. It wasn't in a basement of a church or something like that. And it was, if, if you were a member, you paid a little bit less and you also put in time. So when we relocated to Philadelphia, to Germantown, the first thing we heard was that there were a number of food co-ops there were five, as I recall, in different neighborhoods in Philadelphia. So we moved there in the spring of 1971. 
when I went to join the local food, Don't hit the table. <laughs> joined the food co-op, the Sue Finch looked at me and said, well, but can you work? Because I was nine plus months pregnant with you. <laughs> and I was like, well, I have a husband that can do it. And so Howard and I came in. And the job that was hard to fill was to find somebody to get up at four in the morning and drive down to the food distribution center. And so, uh, sorry to interrupt, was this an existing group of families? Yes. So no physical structure, no place. It was like a church. At that time, uh, churches had op opened up their basements. So there was a Presbyterian church in Germantown. That's where I went to uh, preschool. To, no, uh, no, no. That's up in Westmont area. The original one was at Green and Tulpahocken. Okay. And there was one in West Oak Lane, and there was one in Lower Germantown. There, somehow or another, maybe one in Chestnut Hill. And this is just families getting together and figuring out how to distribute the work, and, and but also save money. There were to save money. I presume we did do it to save money. We were also very interested in fresh produce. Higher quality. And quality that we had access to. Mm -hmm. So the way it worked is that on Thursday morning, you wrote down on a checklist the foods, the amount of food that you wanted. Then the following Wednesday, a coordinator would get together and make a big list. Mm -hmm. And Thursday morning, the drivers, of whom your father was one, would drive down to the distribution center and buy what was needed. And they had a number of distributors that liked to work with them. Then by seven o'clock in the morning, the food was brought back to the church basement. And a next group of volunteers came in and we bagged up everything. So each family then later when they showed up, got a brown paper bag or a box of the food that they had ordered the preceding week. So what you don't remember is every Wednesday, I would go through the refrigerator and take all the vegetables out that I'd ordered the week before, and that Wednesday, we would eat all the vegetables. And that's how you got your first introduction to artichokes. And so the was this, there was a group that was already there. Sue Finch, I remember her being next door to us, or yeah, I mean, physically eventually. we shared a wall. But so how did you meet them? Well, I met Sue Finch because she was the person that was sort of organizing the food co-op for she, Germantown, for the Topohawken one. And did she find you? Did No, we found her. And they were, I, I presume this is on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Not in 1971. It was all word of mouth. And uh, so you were, try, you were looking at for something like this because of, it was in Corvallis. Because of Chicago, Corvallis, you're yeah. like, okay, let's do the same thing in Philadelphia. So somehow you found them. Yep. And It was known. So if you talk to anybody. All right. And you mainly wanted higher quality. You're willing to put in a little bit of effort. You like the lower costs. They had already been doing something. So you found an existing group of- We did. How many people were, were involved at that time? Oh, it's a good question. 30 families, 40 families. So, okay. So when you're going down, you're buying for 30 families for a week. Yeah. So it's like- 30 times 7, 210 days worth of food. I mean, yes. sort of. Was it that big? I'm sure it was that big. And it was an interesting group. It was integrated age-wise, mm -hmm. religion-wise, racially. Um, yeah, I wonder if it was that many. I was 
I can see why the distributors would want to work with you. Because they would show up with the list and we knew how many boxes of tomatoes or how many cucumbers we wanted. And so then when the drivers came back, they unloaded it. Then they went off and did their thing. Then the next crew came in and set up all the brown paper bags or the boxes and started distributing everything. Then by 9.30, 10 o'clock, it was open. And you came in and you picked up your bag and paid your bill. That makes it sound like a well-oiled machine. And that's what you told me before. But now today, just before hitting record, you're like, Josh, you have to understand it was a lot of work and not everyone wanted to do all that work. So there's higher quality, lower costs, but a lot of work and coordination. A lot of work and coordination and getting people to show up to do the job. Uh, Various capabilities. I mean, not everybody was hale and hearty. I mean, we had some very old people. And there's accounting stuff that probably has to be done. And that's maybe, and and you'd have spreadsheets. We did not have (laughs) spreadsheets. Eventually, I think within a year, we realized that we needed to pay somebody to be in charge on Thursday. So somebody eventually, when we came back, maybe just before we went to India, um, so Sarah would have been six months old. I think I was one of those paid people that came in on Thursday. Mm. I would get there at seven. I would direct things. And then once we got the bags, then we had people coming in. It was pretty, it was very well organized. This is all in basements of churches. It, the f- original five. My CSA is in a basement of a church. Yes. The churches have always opened their doors. And that was part of their mission to the community. It didn't, I mean, by, even by 1970-71, the churches were not filling up with people as they had been. And they were looking for ways to be involved in the community. So that's what they did. So this sounds like, I mean, the, the, the suppliers are benefiting from getting, increasing their bulk sales. You guys are benefiting from, um, it sounds like there's a savings of time if someone only has to drive once every 10 weeks or so. Yeah. And then the church is benefiting from hosting it. There's a higher quality food, lower prices, but there's a lot of work. I mean, you were talking about fights. Well, and by the way, we hoped that there would be higher quality. And we hoped that our drivers that went down there would notice the quality. Sometimes we had some complaints. But I will say one thing. We, I always ordered artichokes now and then, mm-hmm. and that's how we all got to eat artichokes. I would never have bought an artichoke in a grocery store because I would have stood there and looked at the price and walked away. But it was so easy to just fill out the blanks and order that. When the fresh corn came in, we would order corn. And, and we did have a lot of seasonal things because 50 years ago, we did not have as much opportunity as we have now to get things from Chile or Peru or from Mexico. It was still pretty much whatever's in season. Now, this was all when I was very young, and I do have some memories, but maybe they're concocted now, but of like boxes around. But also I know that there's – so how do we go from there to Weaver's Way? Because Weaver's Way is – I've always remembered it as being um, a physical store – it's certainly nicer now. I mean, it's way nicer now than it was then. 
and the and there's multiple branches now too. Oh, there is. Oh yeah, they've moved out to I forget where else. I think somewhere outside Philadelphia too. Ah, well, because as I've mentioned, it was harder and harder to get people to do some work. Um, let's look. I mean, there were pe people were going back into the workforce. It wasn't just students. The students were very helpful because they were more flexible. College professors had a flexible time. But as people went in to work in offices or to have real jobs, they had less flexibility. So there was one man up in Westmont area. So, you know, there's neighborhoods. Philadelphia is a city of neighborhoods. So we were Germantown. Then you went up to Westmont area. Jules Timmerman felt that we shouldn't rely on the basements of churches and that we needed to have something like more permanent because, you know, let's face it, you'd buy bulk of something like nuts or non-perishable. Sometimes you would want to get a big bulk, but you wouldn't have ordered. I mean, you wouldn't have prepaid for that. The original model was you only bought what was ordered and was going to be paid for. You didn't have anything left over. Because certainly the church basements were not set up for refrigerated things or storing things. And, you know, there were mice and that sort of thing. And the church also, at the end of Thursday, wanted that room back again. It's the whole basement. So um, Jules Timmerman and Martha Kovar were two people that then started to mold this together to have a structure where, yes, there would be a few paid people, plus there would be a physical place that they could buy in bulk larger and then be able to have savings over a period of time. And then people weren't tied to be working as frequently. Because I think the drivers that went down to... North Philly, I think... North Philly or South, South, South Philly. Philly? They had to do it every three weeks. I don't think we had enough people to say... I see. There were only so many drivers. There were only so many drivers and packers that would go down there and do that. And and then, so that that started to change up in Westmont area. And I remember a board meeting... So Malcolm and Elaine Stogel were very much involved. And again, these were people that had, they were independently had money. They didn't have to go to a job from eight to five every day. So they had time to work things out. And we talked long and hard about it. And then by the time Howard and I came back from India in 1975, um, the Green Street Co-op was gone. The one that Bill had been originally a part of, that was gone. Only Weaver's Way was left. All right, so there are struggles with the work. But at any time, you could have stopped doing it and just gone to regular supermarkets. Yeah, I don't think we ever thought about doing that. What we could do with the Weaver's Way is that we could pay slightly more and not do as much work. More than just this cobbled together family thing and not as – okay, why wouldn't you – but why didn't you even think about going to – just stopping using co-ops and just going to regular food? It's really hard nowadays to go to food co – I mean to the regular market. I'd much rather have placed my order and gotten everything 
And have so it's it actually easier. Yeah, yeah, I preferred that. I didn't have to make decisions. I'd placed my order. The food was going to be there. And that's what I did. So it's easier. In some ways, it was easier. I mean, it's, it's definitely easier. This is so different. This is why I'm having trouble with it when everyone's like, Josh, people can't do this. They have families. I'm like, I was in a family. <laughs> and this is what we did. Because I also remember on Rockland Street, when, we, when I went to neighbor's homes, and I had the welfare peanut butter. I loved it because the welfare peanut butter was really uh, sugary. Yeah. So I felt like I was eating candy. <laughs> but we had the Old Dominion, which was only the, the only ingredients were salt and pe- or peanuts and salt. And sometimes not the salt. It was like creamy or chunky, but there was no sugar. And your father and I were pretty consistent on this. Yeah. So we always had the healthy stuff. The co-op did not have sugar cereals. It did not have um, unhealthy things. No. So... I have this memory of the cheaper stuff being more healthy. And everyone today is like, that Josh, you don't understand. People can't afford to eat healthy. And this is why I'm so... It didn't occur to me until recently that my mind was just... I grew up in a situation where the healthier stuff was cheaper. And it's weird to me. And and now I shop at a co-op where... Actually, this co-op has a non-working membership. Uh-huh. So I am a non-working member. But that's because at the co-op in Philly, Weaver's Way, it was like six hours a year. This place is like two hours a week. So it's a huge difference. But I still get a discount being a member. Right. So I think I'm a part owner. I forget the exact structure. And that model has become more popular as I've gone around and I've been in different cities. I mean, I remember visiting my cousin going to Missoula, Montana, and they had a food co-op that was very similar to the one in Chicago. So if you were married, Lincoln, Nebraska had a food co-op where you could go in. The problem with the original food co-op mm-hmm. is that we couldn't get enough things from the co-op. So we always had to go to the supermarket. Also. Yes. We couldn't get flour. We couldn't, I don't think we had eggs you know, there were certain things that we just couldn't count on. So you had to make a second trip to the supermarket. So the scale has to be, I mean, you really want it to be above a certain size. Has to be above a certain size. And and you have to have people that are committed to the concept that that we can do certain things for ourselves better than just relying on a corporation. I'm very disappointed when I go into Whole Foods. I'm very disappointed when I, well, right now, we're trying to find vegan things. We can't find vegan in any of the supermarkets around us. And it's, um, but a food co-op would have had an interest in this. We could have brought it up at a board meeting. We could have gotten some interest in it and found a way of getting the produce. One of the things motivating this is that I was talking to a professor of leadership at NYU. And he told me about a project that they're working on to try to get, they noticed that in the Bronx, one of the world's biggest, or the nation's biggest distribution center is Hunts Point in the Bronx. And very close to there, so there's tons of fresh produce going through there. I mean, it's huge. And a few blocks away is what a lot of people call food deserts, mm-hmm. where there's no access to fresh food. And they're trying to figure out how to make, it, how to make this work. Now, I talked to them and, and you know, the, the, um, the business school ethos is like, how do we scale big? How do we make it blah, blah, blah? Like, scale big, entrepreneurship. That's cool. But it feels to me like starting from the ground up, it seems even more 
earthy than grassroots. Uh, I want to see if I, I feel like there are probably people in the Bronx who could do what you did, but the drive from Manary, Germantown to South Philly seems a lot bigger than the drive from um, the Bronx to the Bronx. Also, when I mentioned this to your daughter, my sister Susie, she works with Grow NYC, which works with the food, the um, farmers markets, and things like that. And she said there's a program called I forget what it's exactly called, but it's like Food Box NYC, something like that, where if you get a family, if you get enough people together. They will deliver the food to you. That sounds great. So it's like taking out the work part. Yes, and you would, you could place your order. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the problem, though. People aren't cooking. Well, okay, that's the problem. But also, how do you solve it? You, I mean, yes, you need to do multiple things at once. Yeah. And yeah, when I was up in, um, well, I have that story about Tony Hillary who started. Um, Harlem grown, what he calls an urban farm. It's a, there's it, it an empty uh, building lot that he petitioned the city across the street from a school and they gave him the rights to use it. And he went to the school and got the kids to help him make boxes, planter boxes and things like that. And he turned it into a, an urban garden. It's, it's wonderful. He said that when he first got started, he brought the students to, he got some seeds for chard. And this is, this, I, I, this is how I remember it. Have I told you the story? No. But... So he got these chard seeds and they had the first boxes, planter boxes full of dirt. And uh, and he's gotten funding. I'm not sure exactly how, but it's like ground up from the ground up. And he had them uh, dig the hole, put the seed in, cover the cover the seed, water it. And the kid said, where's the chart? <laughs> and he said, it has to grow because they had no idea. They had no idea. So sometime later, the chart had grown and he gave the chart to each of the kids, you know, their seed, they got their, their chart. And they took it home. And the next day, or whenever he saw them next, he said, how did you like it? And they said, our moms threw it out. Because they didn't know how to cook it. Because at least multiple generations have no concept of, right. So now that's changed because of Harlem, uh, Harlem Grown is changing that. Because people, it's, it's this wonderful spot. They took over another plot, empty lot down the field, uh, down the block, where they put up this whole hydroponic system, also with the, stu with the students and also... They won't sell the stuff. It's only to give away. It's for people in the community to get fresh produce. But who's teaching them how to cook? Well, I mean, one thing you could do is say, well, they don't know how to cook. Therefore, there's nothing we can do. We'll just have to put in more McDonald's. We could do that. That's one way to go. I don't like to go that way. No. We could say, let's get this started. Let's get the in, in all the Bronx, might there be enough families to get something like this going or enough? It doesn't have to be families. So, yes, there are problems. Of course, that's the problem. That's one of the problems. But here's the thing. I think we have a lot of grandmothers up in the Bronx that know how to cook. Yeah, my, I, I, it could be that grandmothers, I mean, how many generations have we lost? Yeah. Because, I mean, what do we want? What does Whole Foods want more than people not knowing how to cook? Because they sell mostly packaged stuff. Totally. And I've been there at the end of the day and I see how much produce is left. And the next day it's all fresh. I think they're throwing away a lot of produce. I think they are. So... Yes, it's a problem that people don't know how to cook. How do we jumpstart it? Do we, or, I, I mean, I don't think you're saying we have to give up. I don't think you're saying it's not worth starting. Maybe you are. I don't. I think it's worth starting. I one time had a fantasy of going into a school and putting like a stove in every classroom and we would, we would cook our meals. And I realized that 
there would be so many people who said that's too dangerous, that kids can't cook. But you kids all learned how to cook at a very young age because, do you remember, Bill would make the list? Yeah, we, when, when, <laughs> so for the listeners, the kids would go out to catch the school bus to go to school. And when we came home at the end of the school day, you guys were all out working. We were latchkey kids. Yep. Uh, and there would be a note saying whose turn it was to make dinner that time and a recipe and we had to cook it. Yep. And you were in trouble if it wasn't ready when it was yep. your turn. Now, do you remember the time when you came home and I was watching TV and you said, where's the pasta? And I said, I made it. And you said, where is it? And I said, it's in the pot. Not knowing that you don't, you can't leave pasta in the water. And so you went out and I, what I remember, and this was Walnut Lane. So we must've been, I was like six, seven years old. And you, the, the look on your face that I remember is like, I'm angry, but he, how he didn't know any better. <laughs> like now we don't have any pasta. We have to start from scratch. We just have a bunch of, uh, we have pasta soup here. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I learned you to drain the pasta when you're done. <laughs> Well, we did learn that we needed to give more instructions, and Bill was very good at uh, making a list of exactly what to do. So there was step one, two, three. I have in one of the cookbooks um, how to make granola in the microwave. So step one, how you measure it out, and step two, and how you... Do you remember when we got the microwave? Yes, I remember the, the first microwave that we had, I think we still only had a black and white TV at that point, and certainly not cable. And I remember making popcorn in it, and we had that, the bowl with the funny thing in the middle, so that, the, yeah. oh, that was for the popcorn. And then there was the yeah. other bowl that had for soups, so that, because it had a rounded bottom, a rounded up bottom. Do you remember you kids all had to study the manual, and then Bill quizzed you on it? Oh, I don't remember that. But he's the one that put his wet boots in the microwave thinking <laughs> he could dry them off. That was not a good idea. So let the record show we knew some things but not others. And we kind of figured there's a lot of like trial and error. I mean, well, going we, back to the cough. We taught you how to take a paper towel and put um, a hot dog bun and a hot dog in it. And you zapped it for what, a minute or whatever. And then that napkin or the paper towel then was your napkin and you didn't have a dirty dish to put. And, it, and we did not have a dishwasher at that time. Yeah. We, after dinner, one of there was one person washed and one person rinsed of the kids. It was us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bill and I did not feel obligated to do the dishes after dinner. And now there's one, there's a story I remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I got to tell the story. Maybe I told it before. Um. The rule was every kid was allowed three cookies a day. There was a, on Walnut Lane, on the house of Walnut Lane, there was a, a cookie jar. There was a glass jar with a metal lid. Yep. And one time I was working, I, was, I don't know what I was doing, but I was in the uh, dining room, which the cookie jar was in the little hallway thing next to the, beside the kitchen. And I went over and I opened up the jar, with the, the glass jar with the metal lid, and I got a cookie out. And I forget, like I ate one. And then I went and got another one, but then thought, no, I'm not going to eat it. So I went and put it back. And then I went, I got it again, and then I put it back again. And then I went to get another, and you called down from above, that's your fifth cookie today. <laughs> but I was putting them back. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, because each time you went, shing, when you, took it, when you picked up this lid, so you just heard the openings. Well, that was, you know, 
when we did the dishes, now sometimes I washed the dishes and somebody would help me. It was a good time to have a conversation. There were there were conversations when we cooked, when we did the dishes. That's what uh, another reason. Setting the table. I keep getting confused when people say, I don't have time to feed the kid or to cook. And I'm like, the kids are, aren't the kids involved with this? And what are you doing otherwise? I mean, exactly. isn't that, isn't what, I'm not sure, I'm not a parent, so I don't know, but isn't time spent cooking with the kids one of the best ways to spend time with the kids? How did you feel when you were cooking? Well, with we were us? cooking, I mean, you weren't home yet. Yeah, sometimes we weren't even <laughs> home. But also, like, have the kids, yeah. Why are the parents doing all the cooking? Because now I learn about, like, I do all this stuff learning about uh, indigenous cultures like the Hads and the San. And these are hunter-gatherer cultures. And four-year-olds, the, when a boy is something like four, and they don't keep track of the ages as far as I know. Right. They get a bow and arrow. And they're off hunting small game. And now they can't yet use the poison. The, because they of they certainly poison you can know how to gut the animal and, and skin it. And I've been asking people when, at what age... Should a kid be able to use a very sharp knife? When did we start using sharp knives? I mean, they're never protected. I don't know that we made a di- distinction. I mean, if you needed to use a sharp knife, you used it. And we used a stove? We used the stove. Remember, oh, we, we had, had to stove. light it. You had to yeah. light it because it was so old-fashioned. And that was even before we had the sparker thing. We yeah. used it with a, with a, a, a match, and yes. you just turn on the gas. There was no pilot light. Right. And you guys all learned how to do that. I would say maybe it's because you're of superior intelligence, but I don't know that that's true. It's that we had expectations, and you, we were all in this together. And there was nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we only had one TV. It was in the back room that wasn't heated very well. So you had to be really determined to watch one show. Mm-hmm. And... But we had it all divided up, so everybody took turns. It was part of living together, is that everybody had a, a role to play. So cooking, you know, Bill would go shopping, typically with Susie, but other kids, I don't know, did you ever go shopping? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. And Bill Bill was very methodical about it. so many things, and he, I think he would de- determine... He was determined not to remember what flavors of yogurt everybody liked. He would not come back with <laughs> the right. Everyone flavor. knew who liked what flavors, but he would only get whatever he felt like getting, or whatever was easy, unless you kids went along. Yeah, then we would do and it, and then you would pick it out. And I always remember that when Bill would come back from shopping, or I, all of you kids would go and get everything out of the car. And put it all away. And I thought this was fantastic. And then I learned it's because you were all picking out the foods you wanted and you would hide it. So there were different foods that each one of you liked so that you would have it for your own lunch. And yeah, so the cooking, we we never expected Bill and I to do all of the cooking. And I don't think, I don't know about Howard, but definitely at our house, we had expectations. And Bill would make up the list. I mean, each one of you kids had a different day you were responsible for. The person who cooked did not have to wash the dishes or dry the dishes or put them away. But you were in charge of cooking. I remember one time. Also the laundry and vacuuming and all those other things, too. Well, that's true, too. We had it all. Because that's how families work together. I don't feel that 
moms should do all the work or that dad should do this or that we should just go out to eat. I think. So when people say, Josh, you don't know what it's like to be a single mom in a food desert with three kids and three jobs and trying to make ends meet. You and, and I both know that that I was a single mom trying to make things meet. And so when they say she can't, she has to rely on McDonald's. It's absurd. <laughs> so it makes sense why I would be confused when people say that. Like, Well, the thing we didn't have is access to the cell phones and the internet. And now it's very difficult. I mean, you just turn around and I don't know that Bill and I have it on all the time, but certainly I see children in a household on their device much more, even worse than reading a book. I mean, reading a book I could understand. Instead of doing chores. Instead of doing chores a little bit. But I could say, put the book down and do the chores. But this phone, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's just hard to... And of course, nobody has time then. No, people feel that they don't have time. They feel they don't have time. Because but they do have time to check their uh, social feeds. When I watch somebody on the street where the caregiver is on the cell phone pushing the stroller and the child has the phone propped up in front of them, those children, 18 months already know how to flip things on the cell phone. I can't see that they're going to learn how to cook anytime soon. I mean, the way I think of that is learning how to cook is is the best. The things like learning how to cook is the best way out. Definitely. I totally agree. I mean, because all my volunteering, people like, Josh, people don't have time to do that. I'm not doing that instead of work. I'm doing that instead of watching TV. I'm doing that instead of reading social. Scrolling on the device. And it's much more rewarding because I'm interacting with people. I know people think, well, but I can't keep in touch with all the people in person. Well, you can't keep in touch with them in depth. Anyway, that's getting aside. <laughs> so so say someone's up in the Bronx and they, they're they listening to this and they're thinking, oh, wait a minute, maybe I do have more access to do these things than I thought. Well, I like this idea that they could place an order and it would actually be delivered to them. Well, to a common, to a common place. To a common place. But their box would be their box. I believe so. Or maybe it would all be in one. I don't know but if it would be all mixed together. Then we have to go back to people wanting to cook, people wanting to eat vegetables that aren't fast food vegetables. You know, we've Bill and I are really moving towards many more vegetables than we've eaten. I mean, we've always had vegetables. Certainly, you know, when we moved to Nebraska, Bill was a vegetarian, which is a stupid thing to do in Nebraska because there are no vegetables. Vegetables are what meat eats. <laughs> As a vegetarian, I agree, but there's only one thing more stupid, and that would be not to be vegetarian in Nebraska. But yes, that's up to so. And but it was really hard. That was a food desert. Mm-hmm. It was a fruit and vegetable desert. In Nebraska, it was really hard to find fresh vegetables. Now, we did go down to Lincoln where they had a food co-op that you were a member of. But How long of a drive was, is that? What? How long of a drive yeah, is that? Yeah, that was a good hour, hour and a half. Yeah. Was that once a week you go or once a month? or? 
well, intermittently, because we did try to just do with what we had. It's very hard to do your own cooking today. You have to choose to do it. And there's a lot of reasons that people find not to do their own cooking. What I call rationalizations and justifications. Absolutely. Rationalization and justifications. I'm impressed with what you're saying is going on up in Harlem the Bronx. Yeah, in the, in the Bronx where people are learning to grow. Oh, yeah. The Drew Garden. I mean, that's another story. That's, um, it, it was a wreck. I've seen the pictures of it. It was, it was on, along the, Harlem, uh, the Bronx River, which is the only freshwater river in New York City. And it was just this wreck where people dropped off their spare tire or their used tires and, and whatever. And something like 10 years ago, some people went through and cleaned it out and reclaimed it. And now it's on par in my mind with, in my heart, with Central Park. It's nowhere near the size. But it also doesn't have that corporate stuff that now Central Park does and posts. I think like Simon and Garfunkel in Central Park was not the same Central Park. Of course, it was a, a, um, a dust bowl for a while. But in any case, True Gardens is just some people who live there made it lovely. And when I went up to do my workshops up there to, to talk about sustainable cooking, and, and they were, I took the subway up. I had to carry a pressure cooker, a solar panel, a battery, <laughs> all the food for enough people, plus the instruments, the uh, the knives and chopping boards and stuff, and bowls because I don't think because I'm, I'm I'm not going to let them use disposable. Right. And I'm thinking, well, at least the subway right back, I'll have less food to carry, so it'll be easier. And they give me so much food. Oh, they gave you food. Yeah, because it was the end of the season, and it was like, I mean, the the uh, butternut squash that they gave me was one of the sweetest butternut squashes I've ever had, mm. and it was so delicious. And the I got. Saplings over here. They gave me saplings that are, that are growing in my windowsill, and it brings community together. It's it's lovely. It's and my farmers market, uh, the CSA rather, is um, you have to volunteer there. So I put in a few hours, and you just talk to people, and it's lovely. And then you came up last time a couple times now to in Labor Day when the farm has its potluck lunch, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and people come up and. Um, and that's how what connected me to the Bronx because they drop off here in uh, in, oh. in Chelsea, but they also drop off in the Bronx. So I met people from the Bronx there, and that's what connected me to Drew Gardens. And to me, that's why it's like food, fresh, healthy food brings people together. Whole Foods but, like know, separates people. When I yeah, when I talk to the farmer, your CSA farmer up there, do you know what his biggest expense is? People. His biggest oh, expense is paying the attorneys to keep his six Mexican workers legal. And I said, wouldn't it be easier to find local people to work on the farm? He said, we cannot find local people. They will not work on the farm. And I know that your cousins um, put themselves through university, a University of um, Lincoln, you know, University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Mm -hmm. All three of those kids put themselves through because they were corn tasslers. They worked out in the cornfields. And by the time I was living there, so that would have been 15 years earlier, they all had jobs every summer. They made a lot of money because there was farm work that needed to be done. There wasn't a single kid in David City that would work in the fields. It was all migrant workers 
and most of them were illegal. They were all here looking for an opportunity, and there was an opportunity because our kids wouldn't go out in the fields, and their parents didn't make them. That got a little political here, didn't I? I'm sorry. Well, I don't know if it's political. I mean, I, I, um, it seems it's, it's an odd thing about immigration that both parties want more immigration, but for different reasons. But in any case, is this relevant to starting a food co-op or something like that in the Bronx? Well, you have to have people that are willing to do more than just say there isn't a store for me to walk into. And if there is a store, they're not going to be nice to me because they don't like me. And the prices on the vegetables are too expensive. And so therefore, I can't do anything. No, you can do something. You have to go out and get your hands dirty and go out in the garden. And, and you have to cook and you have to think differently about food. So someone who, if there's someone listening to this who has that feeling, then, and let's say that they're, let's say they're in the Bronx and they want to do this. Do they, now you found, you, when you were there, Sue Finch had already been doing this. In Corvallis, I guess people are already doing it. In Chicago, people are already doing it. But what if there's no one around them doing it? They might have to start it themselves. Now, I guess they can go online and find this program of Food Box NYC or whatever it's called. That would be such a good place to start. And they'd also have to find another bunch of families or other people to order with them. That's true. Did you do any of that? Did you do any outreach? I mean, they, you didn't have the internet back then. So I don't know. How, how did... It was word of mouth. It was talking to people. We actually had a babysitting co-op. So you take turns... Well... You would babysit for somebody and you'd get script that you would then use to pay somebody else. So it was a network of parents that sometimes Howard, oftentimes Howard went because he could do work when he put the kids to bed. And sometimes I went. But, and then when we wanted a babysitter, we'd call around. I, I can't even imagine having a babysitting food co I mean, a babysitting co-op today. And was this extra work? Was it enjoyable? Was it a pain in the butt? Would you are you glad? Would you rather not have that if you had more money, or did you prefer that even if you had more money? That's a good question. Because none of I don't think any of us felt that we had a lot of money to hire babysitters. So it was uh, parents that wanted to have like-minded parents in their home. That was an, that's an interesting. So it might have been, you might have done it even if you were rich. Yes, I think people did, yeah. Because of, you see, one of the things I keep learning is that every time that there's some sustainability issue, that when I start doing something, everyone's like, oh, you can't do that. It's too much of a pain or whatever. And then when I do it on the other side of the effort is community. Like in the beginning of the pandemic, when my CSA, um, it used to be that there'd be one big box of onions, one big box of uh, lettuce, one big box of whatever, and you take your thing. And then during the pandemic, they had to, no one knew how it spread at this point. So you got your box and everything was wrapped in plastic. So I said, I don't, can I do this without the plastic to the volunteer at the place? I'm like, I don't know. Talk to the farm. And people, and then, but then it was like, but they have enough trouble. It's really going to be annoying. And I thought, I got social skills. I can be not annoying. <laughs> so I call the guy up and I say, can I do it without the plastic? He goes, thank you for calling. Oh, We only get complaints and therefore we have to do what we think will generate the least complaints. And I said, I will not complain. I'll be your guinea pig. If all the vegetables come out bruised and destroyed, 
no complaints from me. I just don't want the plastic. And he said, some of the stuff comes from other farms we have partnerships with. We can't do anything about that. But the stuff from ours, we'll put it in the box as is. No plastic per thing, per, per box. So the next week I come in and I walk up and the person says, I say, I'm Josh. And they say, oh, you're the one with the uh, no plastic thing. And the person next to me says, you can get no plastic? How do I do that? <laughs> Good. So everyone... Everyone is like, don't do it. You're just don't to be a pain. And when I came up stayed with you during the pandemic, you were like, oh, there's no farmer's markets around here now. And then there was. There was that um, the thing where we'd go on Friday mornings to order off online. Right. And we would get together because one time we ordered something and by the time we put the price through, someone else had gotten it. So we realized, oh, we got to go quick. Right. So we'd, it was like our I don't know, Wednesday, Friday, whenever it was, we'd meet and we'd be like, pick this stuff out. And, we'd, and then Bill and I would drive there to get it. And I'm like, that's community. Yeah, well, that did not it, last. It didn't last. No. But it was there. I mean... Well, somebody put it together. Mark and a few others put it together. And that, this is my model for when things are expensive, when things are unavailable, get together with people. Mm. And you will enjoy... It, it'll take work. And on the other side of the work, it's going to be something... It's going to be your band, your tribe, your your fellowship. And so when you're saying people don't know how to cook, I'm thinking, okay, they're going to learn how to cook then. Yeah. We all, yeah, we did have to learn how to, and you know, nowadays you can just go on the internet and find all sorts of recipes and, and, and little videos about how to cook this or how to cook that. <laughs> and it's much easier than decades ago. Uh, it's interesting how much people want things being done for them, like the fast fashion. I'm really distressed about that, even more than the food, Josh. I'm more distressed with what the fashion industry, what has happened in the last 20 years. Let's make that another episode. Another episode. Because my mom does fab scrap and she does a lot of a lot of stuff around, like the, what we're doing, talking about food, but with, with clothing. Yes. But we'll leave that to another one. Okay. Uh, should someone who doesn't know, okay, so say someone doesn't know how to cook, they don't know anyone. See, to me, that says, this is the how to learn. How, I mean, this is how to meet people around, go knocking on doors and, or, you know, whatever you have, the, if you go to church, if you go to, if you have, if if you have kids, that means the school, which means there's other parents. Yeah. I can't understand when people say I can't cook. I mean, kids can cook. I yeah. mean, there's videos you can look Wait, at. It. I know. Oh, I got to tell my story about, um, I might have told this on an episode when you were on before, but uh, when I was talking to grandma and we were... My mother? Yeah, your mom. Okay. And we were, uh, I think, I think we might have been making an apple pie. And I said to her, whose apple pie is better, my mom or you? And she said, oh, I'm not going to answer that. Ah. And uh, time passed like a minute or two later. I go, no, come on, who, who's better? Who makes a better pie? And she's like, I'm not going get, to get in trouble like that. And a third time I said, "How many? who makes a better pie? And she goes, look, I'm not going to answer that, Josh, but I taught her everything she knows. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, her, when she was cooking and when I was growing up, you ate the pie in one day. And because um, there wasn't a lot of refrigeration, you know, I mean, little, and it was hot in the summertime and things would go wrong. Anyway, when I made my apple pies, Bill always loved them. And there had been two pieces left from the night before. 
He was looking forward to having that for breakfast with coffee. And he came downstairs and all the apples had been taken out. Mother had eaten them and <laughs> left the crust. And she said, well, the crust isn't good the second day, but the apples were. It's the only time my husband got mad at my mother. He was furious. Now, furious. for people listening to somebody eating pie for breakfast, there's no sugar added to this pie because, I mean, maybe a little sprinkled on top yeah. to brown the crust. Yeah. But fruit is sweet. Why add sugar? Right. Don't bring sand to the beach. Although one time, apparently, I was at, actually, it was the funeral. It was food after the funeral of my uncle. And I remember that they came, the ladies came over to the table and asked if we'd like some pie. And she said they had apple pie. And I apparently said, is it sweet apple pie or sour apple pie? Embarrassing my mother. But you know, in those days... Now we're talking about the 50s, late 40s, early 50s. Sugar wasn't around. It was very special. And you didn't have really sweet things because, you know, it was coming out of the war. You don't... What was a Christmas gift? Was oranges. I think that's what I remember. It's like you had one orange for six people. Well, one, a couple of oranges. Yeah, you didn't... Yeah, there was not a lot of extra food. And I've been thinking about that, you know, the gardening that we did and the vegetables that we harvested, and you ate whatever came in season. And yet, you know, the other thing I've been thinking about recently is that even in Lake Andy, South Dakota, they actually had more variety of fruits and vegetables than I see in my local supermarket sometimes. Um, I mean, how we would, but it was seasonal. So when the peaches came in from Colorado in August, I mean, that was a big deal. We all, we got a bushel or two bushels and we canned them or we froze them so that we could enjoy them all winter. But we actually had fresh figs. Now, you have them because you found Susie. the fig tree, yeah. But the, you don't have fresh figs in stores anymore. I think you have to go to a very specialized store before you... But our little store in Lake Andy, South Dakota, had fresh figs. I remember at that time we loved... Well, we called them Bing cherries, sweet cherries. And when I was working there, I bought a pound one day. And I counted it out. It was 59 cents for the pound. That was a lot. It was, I got 35 cents an hour, so it was an hour and a half of work. And there were 59 Bing cherries for 59 cents. They were a penny. And we still had penny candy in those days. But now, everything is so sugary. Everything you look at is sugar. Just sugar. It's driving me crazy. That's why I call it doof. It's not food. I love, Bill and I love the term doof. We love looking at it. And that's what you don't get in the produce and when you do it yourselves. So I think if there were some way of organizing somebody, if you can get it delivered to one place, but then we still have to teach people how to cook. Okay, so when I started my CSA, this was after... So community-supported agriculture, that means every week a box is delivered to uh, the church basement nearby. I go and pick it up, and I paid for it ahead of time. So the farm gets prepaid, 
it's in principle, if this floods some year, I might not get as much, but it's always been more, I've always gotten a better, a better price per volume than I would at the supermarket or any other place. And they grow what they grow. And they're always, there's usually some staples, like there's always going to be a whole bunch of lettuce this time of year and there's going to be tomatoes, but there's also going to be some weird things. Like I, like I never had, um, it was my first time having uh, tomatillos, for example, never heard of them before and had to figure out what to do with them. Well, they're fruit, so I just eat them. But uh, or I put them in salads. But sometimes there's something that like, what do I do with this thing? Yeah. And also there's this flood of stuff. It's it's not designed for one person. Although now that that's only like I only eat that stuff, it's not I, I run out of it by the end of the week. But I have to figure out what to do with it. The rule is none of it goes to waste. So I gotta figure it out. So there's like a bunch of garlic scapes over there. Not too hard to figure out what to do with garlic scapes, but I didn't get them before, but that's how I'd learn. Yes. And so did we at the food co-op. I mean, we'd see something like, as I said, the artichokes. They never came to Lake Andes. So in Philadelphia, when I had an opportunity to buy artichokes, then I had to find out how to cook them. And you kids loved them because you got to dip them in butter. And that was fun. And you got to, you had fun with it because you would scrape it off and you didn't have to eat all of it. There was there's something to be said for kids being able to discard some things. I have a, an artichoke story now Okay. from just the other day because I got a bunch of artichokes. I was going up to the roof to charge my batteries and I brought um, some of my stew in a, in a container. When I got to the roof, 11 flights up, I realized – and I had an artichoke that I'd also uh, cooked. I, I just put it in the pressure cooker while I cooked the, the stew. I get to the roof. I open up the container. And I look at my bag and I forgot to bring a spoon. So do I want to go 11 <laughs> flights down and come back 11 flights up just to get a spoon? And then I look at the artichoke and I'm saying those leaves look like spoons to me. So I ate the stew using the artichoke leaves as my spoon. Well, we had fun with the vegetables. I mean, you know, we ate them. But you had parents who were willing to cook them. And that's a big difference. Um, so it's attitude. It, there's attitude. It's culture. Culture and attitude. It's not relying on pre-processed things. It's not opening up a package and just adding water and being done with it. So the money and time is what people are saying. But it's more that they don't want to get involved with the work. If they do the work, but then I think a lot of people think, but if I, the work means time and effort and I'm doing three jobs and so forth. But you're saying... I'm saying that they may, in fact, have three jobs, that two or three jobs that they're working at. But I also know that there's an awful lot of TV and device watching. And we've moved away. And, and the schools have stopped teaching cooking. And if you're not learning somewhere along the line, we had home ec classes where at least the girls learned how to cook. But We had it. Yeah, in junior high, I remember. Did did you? Yeah. We had to learn cooking. We also had shop, which the girls had to do too. Oh, really? Yeah. That was at Central? Uh, uh, Masterman. Oh, really? So that was seventh, eighth grade, yeah. But you guys already knew how to do this, so. Yes. <laughs> you were doing fine. Early in the conversation, you said between you and dad, you weren't working. At the time. So, so you didn't have money. But then after the divorce, you were working because. I was working, but. Yeah. You're, in fact, you were the only parent before. I mean. I was a single parent. Yeah. And, and of course, that's when women didn't get paid. So 
to live on $5,900 for a year, among other expenses that I had, we had to do all the cooking. But when I got a raise, I went up to 12000 So again, not having money was a reason to cook. Yeah. Not having time was a reason to cook. Yes, because one time when I was selling real estate, somebody wanted to, have, wanted to see me at 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon. Now, you're going to cringe with this. But he walked by at 5.30 in the McDonald's and said, I thought you said you had another appointment. And I pulled out my appointment book and showed him that I had put in dinner with my kids, but it was at McDonald's. <laughs> so how often did we go to McDonald's? I don't know. But not very often. It was a big treat. It was a huge treat. Like once a week, once a month, no, once a year? probably once a month. Once a month? Once a, once a month. That was cash. Mm. We didn't have cash. Yeah. So now that's become de facto... And they've made it so cheap because it's doof, total doof. There's nothing real about it. You know, there's a man in Iowa, northwest Iowa, where he has a big palatial estate. And he is the one who invented the process for taking waste, um, fats and things like that from cows, and he figured out a way of sending it through some sort of centrifugal force to pull the meat out. And that's what goes into McDonald's hamburgers, is these little shreds of things. And he, I, rumor had it, he got a penny a hamburger. Think about that. Yeah, when you say how many billions served. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, at, at that point, it was just, no, I couldn't think of, of eating that. I mean, because in the olden days, we would even we on the farm didn't eat that kind of food. I presume we had dogs, that sort of for? Or? Yeah, pigs. We'd pass it on to the pigs. Mm -hmm. So now, okay, so if someone's in the Bronx or some, some equivalent somewhere, and so the next step is to, um, so we said it's to find people. If there's a program like this one with the boxes to find that program, also, but then once you start getting stuff, learn how to cook by, like, get the stuff and then start cooking. Maybe that is a possibility, is have the stuff and make a commitment to not let it go to waste. So you have to figure out how to do something with it. Yeah, with me, it was, I mean, I've been cooking my whole life, yes. but never from scratch. Yes, you did. Well, okay, never from no, zero packaging. I mean, there was always, I mean, when I made that pasta, we didn't make pasta from scratch. No. So there's always like I have. <laughs> I um, I was in the the uh, Goodwill around the corner that's not closed, but they had a pasta maker for like a few bucks, and I was like, "Do I get this or not? Do I get this or not?" I ended up not getting it. Uh, you know, like hand crank. Yeah, yeah, we had that. But in my case, it was I. Given that basis of, of growing up cooking, it still took me a few months to figure out how to get back into it. So it was only cooking from scratch, and it was only you know. Um, well, you added that you had limitations on what you were willing to cook with. Yeah. So you added that. But most people are going to cook with a stove or an oven. They're going to have a refrigerator where they can keep track of things. Yeah, well, th at that time, I still was using the, fr oh. the fridge was plugged in. And I, in principle, would use a stove. But I ended up just going 
with the she's pressure cooker. Her hands down. You used to have pans up there. So she's looking over. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right. I did. Yeah. I missed the pans. Yeah, they're still underneath. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I was thinking about putting them on, on Craigslist to sell them, and I was like, not sure. Because I just start looking into um, not uh, conduction uh, fryer cooker things. So I haven't gotten one yet, but I might try one out if I come across one that's for sale or something like that. But still, the power that comes out of the, uh, these solar batteries, I don't think it'll, I'll get the full – I don't know if I'll be able to like fry something with them because – I think you can, actually. I was Because they go up to like 1,500 watts, and my thing only delivers 700, 800 watts. So it has the energy, but not the power. Well, you're the physicist, so you would know more about that. But I was just reading that there is – um, a really good single unit. Yeah, a plug-in. Yeah. A plug-in. And you can do cooking and my cast iron. And see, that's the other thing. I always use cast iron. So you guys were getting iron. It, you know, it was dissolving a little bit. So I always felt it was healthier. But the cast iron can be used on induction. All right. So I have to step away from the microphone so she, so my mom can see my still have the cast iron. Oh, I think. <laughs> so you can hear that as cast iron. Cast iron. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, sorry to step away from the mic. So, um, so if people aren't, th- is there anything that should stop someone from doing this? From at least s- taking these initial steps. I mean, they might find that no one goes for it, but eventually, if they don't have time or money, that's not a reason to stop. No, uh, it's if you want to have something that you're going to put on TikTok, and it has to be elaborate, then that will be very complicated. If you want to just provide sustenance, healthy sustenance, it doesn't take that much extra time. And there's so many things online that you can go and find out how to even boil water <laughs> uh, that people can do that. Look, when, when my husband quit his corporate job, he was home, Bill. He was home. And I was still running a business, and I was trying to cook for all of us. And I said, you need to cook. And he said, but I don't know how. I said, give me a break. You you cook, you know, wonderful breakfasts and things. He said, I do guy stuff. I barbecue. I do uh, corned beef and hash that I can get from the can and add eggs. He said, but whenever I've cooked, I, the recipes just don't work for me. And I looked at him. And I said, well, you have to treat the recipe as though it were a chemistry assignment. You have to measure carefully. And I, he said, really? He said, I thought you just sort of made deviations. And I said, you don't do deviations until you have done the recipe successfully three to five times. But the first couple of times, you have to follow the recipe. You have to measure a half a teaspoon of salt in this and that. And that's what he did. And today he is a fantastic cook and he's brave. He'll look up things and he'll find something from China, a Chinese dish that he wants to make. And and now that we've moved away from animal-based products, so he's now figured out that one of his most favorite dishes right now, some sort of noodle dish, um, it's just really good with Beyond Meat, Beyond Beef, Beyond. No, it's great. Now you just said you and Bill were talking about cooking, but I thought the kids cooked. So how? 
Oh, oh we were half, away half the time. You were away. No, no. Yeah. When he quit his job, remember, you guys were off in college. Oh, the, okay. So this is uh, down in South Carolina. This is down in South Carolina. Okay. So it's much, much, much later. Okay. Much, much later. But you're also cooking when, I mean, half the time the kids were at the other, we were at dad's and, right. and Brian and Shelley were at their mom's. So you guys were cooking by yourselves then. Yes. But it was probably, I did most of the cooking, mm. except for weekends. Okay, so now what I wanted to get out of this was what was going on, like where the co-op came from. Because the co-op is one of the great memories of my childhood. It, the memories weren't great because I didn't appreciate it at the time because it wasn't the welfare of peanut butter. <laughs> but looking back, it was a wonderful experience. I remember one time when I volunteered, not vol when I was doing the hours there, uh, this was at dad's house. They had me cleaning off the dirt from the basil. So they give me the sprayer and the sink and, and just like spray off the dirt and put the basil in here. And at the end, there's all these leaves in the, in, the, um, in the sink that came off in the spraying. And I was supposed to put them in the, in the compost. I said, can I have them? They're, yeah, whatever. Take them. So I made basil from, with a pestle, with a mortar and pestle for the Did first time. Really? Yeah. And that was when I, my rule of thumb was no one ever put the right amount of garlic in a recipe. So I was always – I used to put in double the recipe and then triple the recipe. And that was when I was my sixth time – the amount of garlic. So I put in six times the amount of garlic and that was a wonderful... <laughs> you and Bill with that garlic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it helps, but I think there's always a time that you can start. I remember, now I worked after school and on weekends when I was in high school. So I never cooked around mother. I mean, there were things that I knew how to follow a recipe, but I wasn't a regular cook because I was working. When I had a roommate in Minneapolis, Rachel, I felt we should have a dinner for the family that had taken care of us, her relatives. And so I found a recipe in a magazine, and it was a ragu of some sort. And I remember that those adults, I mean, now look, we were in our early 20s, it was after college, couldn't believe I'd made this exotic dish. And I said, but there was a recipe. I just followed the recipe. I'm thinking that this would have been in 1966, 67. I'm thinking already at that time, people were saying, you, it's too much trouble to follow a recipe. And you can't make anything. Now, they were Lithuanians, and they had their traditional recipes. This happened to be a French stew of some sort. And it was just they couldn't believe that you would follow a recipe and get something to taste good. But following a recipe is like being a chemistry in a chemistry lab. And that's what Bill figured out. Well, this goes a long way to why I had so much trouble figuring out why people kept saying, Josh, people can't do this stuff. And I'm being like, but that's why to do it. Mm. And, and how when they say, like, if there's no one to cook, what, the kids. Yeah, the kids should be cooking. Yeah. Well, they might, and the kids might be less preferential with their, you know, right now they're being brought up to only like fried foods from restaurants. And, you know, in New York City, it's really easy to go to a restaurant. It's very easy to do that. Yep. Not for me anymore because it's... Blah. Yeah. Right. All right. So anything else? Then? Oh, and if some, I think when I said, if something like this gets going in the Bronx and you, would you like to 
show up and talk in person of, I mean, you know, no, no obligation, but if the logistics worked out, would that be something that you would enjoy sharing your experience? I would love to. Yeah. I'm sure there are people up there that would like to do this. And how many do you think we need to find to make it work? 20? Well, we would only have to find one if that person wanted to do the rest. If there were one person like a Sue Finch. Yeah. Bless her heart, she's gone. She passed. Yeah, there, it takes one person with a passion. And that was Jules, uh, Jules Timberman. He had a passion, and he got that started because he knew that would build the community. Well, I don't know that he knew it would build the community, but he knew that somebody had to be paid to keep it consistent. And he didn't know that 50 years later, people would be talking about him. 50 years later. Well, 40. It was late 70s by the time he... Okay. Yeah. But still, yes. Generations later. Yes. Anything to wrap up with? Hmm? Anything to wrap up with? I think it would be fun to go up there and do a cooking class. We could make bread. We could make sourdough bread. How was my sourdough rye bread today? Was it sourdough? I didn't know. You told me... Okay, yeah. It was... was, um, it was delicious, and the texture was what really drew me in because it was like a nice solid bread. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep, that's it. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.